There are so many contradictions in the nativity story between the gospels. It's absolutely shameful that more people don't notice or flat out don't care. In just the first few verses, the narrative completely unravels itself. And yet, 2,000 years later, so few people have managed to examine this one detail, and it's a big one, that the entire story just keeps going and going and going and going. No, the Bethlehem Holiday Inn wasn't full, and no, Jesus wasn't born where ox and ass were teeming, and there was no evil innkeeper turning an infant out into the cold, not even in the Bible. The reason why that whole thing about the census is in there in the first place was that it was an approximate historical marker that people would be able to relate to. At the time, whoever thought that the story would ever be contested? Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And And it's it's time to get Unbound. We three kings of Orient aren't. We're just some guys who followed a star. It's a story. Please don't worry. Try not to think too hard. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And this week, we're going to take apart the nativity story and show you why there is no possible way any of it could be true, even when peppered with a few somewhat true but still misguided details. It amazes me that the same issues that exist in the apocryphal books that kept them out of canon were largely ignored when deciding which of the Gospels were going to make the cut. But here I go again trying to apply logic to religion and the Bible in particular. But before we get into any of that, love, guns, tornadoes, and more round out this week's Christians Behaving Badly with a couple bonus rounds, including a surprise moment of reason from an unlikely source and some astoundingly good news for humanity from our friends at Pew Research. Shell, what have you got for us this week? Well, first, because of course... We have a pastor in Tennessee giving away two AR-15s the Sunday before Christmas, just in time for gift giving. Well, that's going to take care of someone on someone's list. Yeah, that's scary. In more ways than one, probably. Mm. Todd Holmes, pastor of the River of Tri-Cities Church in Johnson City in the far eastern corner of Tennessee, announced a giveaway in a video on the church's Instagram page while wearing a shirt that uses various weapons to spell the word love. And if that doesn't encapsulate well what I say all the time about this religion, Mm. about how it packages love as hate and In this instance, love is violence. Yeah. You know, it amazes me what passes for love in the minds of these people. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it did then, but it does even more so now. Oh, it's worse now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This has prompted criticism from people who question how giving away guns promotes the message of the gospel. Yeah, about that. Yeah. A Twitter user who said he messaged the church to see if it was a joke posted a screenshot of the response he said he got. I don't use guns to bring people in, the response reads. This is for our church family who appreciates it. Not sure who sent the post to you, but I guarantee you that it was not one of our church people. It was just a hater who likes to promote division. Have a Merry Christmas, dude. Your post is all over the freaking internet right now. It amazes me how little they understand about it's stuff like, like this. You threw it on Instagram. Yeah. There's no privacy filter. Oh, no. Everybody just sees everything. Right. And again, these people are, they're ignorant yeah. about so much, especially when it comes to things like technology. It's like they they don't seem to understand how social media works. No. They don't seem to understand even a little bit about how computers work. You remember that whole thing with Mike Lindell and the the data packets? Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing that in his head he's seeing like packets of sweetener or something along those lines. Manila envelopes full of information. That too. But I'm... I'm guessing that his brain didn't even take it that far. No. He's thinking of packets, and packets. that's a physical thing that you can touch and hand to somebody. It's Yeah, no. No, no, I'm sorry. It really doesn't work that way. Nope. And 
being surprised that somebody shared your content on social media really says a lot about what you understand about social media. I mean, I saw it on the Christian Nightmares Instagram, which I follow and is it's pretty awesome, actually. This Sunday's giveaway is at least the third firearm giveaway the church has hosted this year. Just this year, huh? Just this year. The church also gave away a 12-gauge shotgun on Father's Day and a rifle on Independence Day. These people know how to celebrate, don't they? I, dip, I Well, at least they're thematically consistent, I guess. I guess if you're going to say something positive about them, and I'm not sure why you would even need to, yeah. I guess that would kind of cover it. Yeah. So there's that. Yep. And just to prove that good things can come out of very bad circumstances. Yeah, right. Let's talk about this tornado and how it impacted one of our favorite people in this religion right now. Oh, yes. He's wonderful. The tornado that ravaged several states earlier this week also managed to damage the Global Vision Bible Church, pastored by hate preacher Greg Law. It damaged it to the tune of about $100,000, destroying stages and screens and chairs and other things. It would figure that a guy who regularly screams at his congregation about COVID being a hoax and not to get vaccinated was also not prepared for a tornado, especially since his church is held in a circus tent. Number one, how fitting is that? Yeah, right. And number two, what precisely do you do to prepare for a tornado when your church is a circus tent? I don't know. Take it down? What can you do? I know. You can take down the tent, yeah. But you also have to move all the stuff. The fact that they have electronics in there and they didn't think to bring them inside. These people don't think about much of anything. Well, no, they don't. Besides their agendas and how they're going to perpetuate them and further them. Yeah, right. Of course, cue the pleas for sympathy and the martyr posturing. But he's still going to preach next Sunday. He's convinced that God will move mightily in his church. We will not let a destroyed tent stop what the Lord is doing. Well, then, would you mind letting us in on what it would take? I know, right? Because we'll make it happen. Um, see, <laughs> no, that, we won't. See, that's, that's kind of my point. I don't think we will make it happen. But, but I feel like will. someone... Someone could make it happen. Yeah. But it seems to me that what the Lord was doing was destroying your tent. If I were still a believer, I'd be wondering if God was trying to tell me something. But this particular God would be behind this guy 100%. Oh, yeah. You know, if anything at all, it would prove that there is a God and it's not this one. Right. You know, that's that's about it. It's crazy. Um, My next two stories contain good news in a rare change of pace. Oh, we kind of like good news around here when we can get it. Yeah, we do. Yeah. While the current Supreme Court of the United States... Wait, I thought you said good news. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court? It's a trash fire in many respects. They did manage one excellent decision this week. The U.S. Supreme Court has turned away a challenge to New York State's vaccine mandate for healthcare workers, a mandate that provides no exceptions for religious objectors. The vote was six to three. That's surprising. The ruling majority included the court's three liberal judges, along with three conservative judges, including Amy Coney Barrett. This is the second request for a challenge for a vaccine mandate that the Supreme Court has turned away. The mandates are a way to make more people get the vaccine in order to stop new cases and also to hopefully head off new variants. In its brief, the state noted that the COVID-19 vaccination rules are the same as pre-existing vaccine requirements for measles and rubella that have been in effect for decades. Duh. Seriously. I mean, they're just now thinking about this and it took the Supreme Court to get there. Right. Unreal. The state agreed that where possible, federal law requires employers to provide reasonable accommodations for religious objectors, but it noted that it does not require employers to offer objectors their preferred accommodation, namely a blanket religious exemption allowing them to continue working at their current positions unvaccinated. You know, it bothers me to think that anyone's working anywhere unvaccinated where they're going to be around other people, much less in a healthcare setting. Right. And that's just like, no, no. I think that 
religious exceptions are ridiculous. And Christians do not have religious exemptions. No one of any religion can look at this particular issue and say, this discriminates against us, because as you just mentioned, there are exceptions to this rule that go back for decades right? that have never been challenged. And this one is only being challenged because they're being taught to challenge it. Right. And that's it. That's the entire reason why this is happening. Yeah. The only religion I can think of that actually has a medical exemption is Christian scientists who just don't believe in any type of medicine, actually. Well, then they don't need to be working in healthcare. They just don't need to be in that position, especially right now. Right. So, I mean, in an instance like that, I mean, you can't not, you can't decide not to hire someone on the basis of their religion. Right. But I don't think that there would be anything that would prohibit an employer from not hiring someone who is of a religion that won't allow them to adhere to workplace standards like vaccinations or something along those lines. There's a loophole in there somewhere. It's problematic any way you look at it, but I'm certain that there's a loophole in there somewhere because if you are not able to comply with workplace standards, then why would you apply for that job in the first place? Oh, I know. It makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. But, you know, like I said, it it would be problematic either way. But I do think that, you know, even, even in that particular case, there are ways around it. Oh, yeah. To make sure that everybody stays safe. Yeah, definitely. And uh, for my last story, according to the most recent Pew Research survey, a record number of Americans have no religious affiliation. This is a continued push away from organized religion, a trend we've been seeing for a few years now. To give a baseline, in 2007, the nuns were at 16%. That's no religion. People who don't adhere to a religion, not nuns, like Catholic nuns. And in 2004, they were at 22%, and now the nuns are at 29%. That is amazing. Yeah, it really is. Yep. I heard this on another podcast earlier today. Yeah. And I was like, that is fucking amazing. Yeah. I mean, we're almost, almost at one in three. Yeah. Almost. Give it a few more years. The amounts of people identifying as Christian went from 78 to 63%. That's In the same time frame. Today, 24% of U.S. adults describe themselves as born-again or evangelical Protestants, down six percentage points since 2007. That's encouraging, too, but it's still a lot. It's still a lot. In my head, it's still a lot. They're stubborn. Mm -hmm. They're stubborn. They cling. Mm Mm-hmm. During the same time period, there has also been a six-point decline in the share of adults who are Protestant but not born again or evangelical, from 22% to 16%. Very nice. Yes. Other information shows that belief in God is also on the decline. For instance, the number of Americans who pray daily is at 45%, down from 58% in 2007. Telephone surveys conducted in 2017 and 2019 found fewer U.S. adults saying religion is very important in their lives compared with previous telephone polls. And the 2021 survey finds that 41% of U.S. adults now say religion is very important in their lives, four points lower than the 2020 survey and substantially lower than all of the center's earlier readings on this question. That is amazing yes and you know it just it's so encouraging it really to see is numbers like this and then you have to take into consideration that even the ones that don't give a, a none answer to this yeah you have to understand that that also includes the average eastern christmas christian okay right. people to whom you know, they, they believe it because it's just a family thing. They were born into right. it, but they don't really believe it. So if you were to add those people into the mix, I guarantee you that that number would be even higher because, you know, with all due respect for a lot of those types of people, it's just a cultural exercise at this point. It's something they've gotten used to. It's something that they've done since they were children. So they keep doing it now. 
but they don't really think about it much when they walk out until it's time to go next Christmas Eve. So that number could be much higher yeah, at this point. It you know, it could be way higher than the 29% that they're reporting. It's just that the way that the questions are asked, you can't lump them all into one. Right. But there's a lot of people out there, I'm sure, that even if they go to church occasionally, like a couple of times a year, would also tell you that they are at least agnostic, if not 100% atheist, and going along with it because a family member wants them to go or whatever. You know, there's there are so many ways that these numbers can be examined yeah. and come up with something that's even more encouraging than this. Because right. the ones that we're really concerned about are the ones that are in those pews every single Sunday and believe that they can do things like speak in tongues and talk to God and that yeah. God talks to them and all of that. Those are the ones that are still a threat and a danger. Not the ones that are going to go to church on Christmas Eve and not go again until next Christmas Eve. We don't right. really care about them yeah. because they're inconsequential in terms of the actual dumb religion problem that yeah. exists in this country. But I look at those numbers and I see how they just keep increasing slash decreasing depending on what the positive is here. Right. You know? Yeah. But uh, I think, and uh, I don't know if you saw this with all the data right. that you compiled for this, but I did hear on another podcast that they also said that these trends quote, show no sign of slowing. No. No, so it that, doesn't look like it. That is really encouraging. 4% in a year. Yeah. 4% in a year. That is amazing. Right. And it is very encouraging. And it just fires me up for what we're doing here. Mm, because definitely. it means that people are listening to messaging like this. And people need to hear the truth laid out in front of them in a way that they can understand and accept. And with that in mind, our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. If you have a fiver you can throw our way, we will put it to good use in the upcoming year and continue cranking out some great content for you, including our Unbound at the Movies segment that I have compiled a short list of movies that I'm considering yes. for 2022 among them. And you can let us know what you think about some of these. And if you have suggestions for others, we also want to hear that too. But I'm looking at The Apostle, The Life of Pi, which I've talked about many times here. I figure why not just examine the whole thing? M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, which has a really, really good anti-religion message in it, which is not typical no. of M. Night stuff. Right. And I'm not even sure if it was intentional, but it's there. <laughs> um, the Mission which is another really, really good movie, I think, from the early 90s. Um, yeah. Robert De Niro, it's about the Jesuits. Then there's Star Trek V, and before you laugh, you know, I feel like this is the most underrated of the Star Trek movies. Yeah. And, again, a phenomenal anti-religion message in this movie from the very beginning to the very end. Um, Leap of Faith is another one we're looking at. The Last Temptation of Christ and we're coming for you, Becky. Jesus Camp. <laughs> Jesus Camp is on my list. And that's what we've got in the works for the upcoming year so far. Next week, we are doing our New Year's episode. It's coming out the day after Christmas. So yep. we're going to be talking New Year's resolutions again. And the working title is Living Unbound in 2022. And then on January 2nd, we're going to ring in the new year with Unbound at the Movies, Saved. Yes. I settled on Saved for the next one. So with all of that good stuff happening, please consider helping us out. Please consider making a donation at patreon.com slash Network. If you're legit broke and you just don't have the money to spend, then just like we say every week, likes, shares, reviews, five-star ratings, all of these things help us out tremendously and tell someone new about the show this week, especially if you know someone who would benefit from what we have to say. You could be instrumental in that person getting and staying unbound, and that's what we're all about here. Let's just help some people get their lives back, and let's do it together, and let's have a great time with this show in 2022. And with that, let's dive right into our main topic for this episode. So first, let me go right on record with this. 
society, for reasons unknown, have no trouble believing that Jesus actually existed. In fact, most treat it as a given. Even news sources speak of Jesus as an actual human who actually lived and actually died. My 10th grade secular social studies book even stated as fact that Jesus lived, but it also managed to end his story with his execution, which I remember being offended by in 10th grade. Like, how dare they treat this yeah. this way? One whole paragraph. And they end it like that. It's like, no, there's more to the story. My little evangelical brain was just on overload yeah. over that. I read it. My jaw dropped. It's like, how on earth could you just end the story there? Well, you end the story there because that's where the story ends. And if you believe that Jesus actually lived, that's a decent synopsis. He did this and then he died. And yeah. that's how you're supposed to report history. But the problem is that the book and many, 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 many other sources just take for granted that he was a real person. And therein lies the problem. Even a secular society like ours, and yes, we are a secular society, let's not forget that, and becoming more so by the day. Even our secular society looks at this one source, the Bible, a religious text with clearly flawed accounts of many, many, many things as they relate just to history as an authority worthy of just accepting as truth. They take the Bible at face value and choose to blindly believe that Jesus was a real person. By all credible accounts, he was not. And if he was anything at all, either he was an amalgam of a bunch of religious nutters of the day, or he was one very visible rabble-rouser whose story got heavily inflated over time. I personally think that it's option A. The Council of Nicaea did its homework and constructed an avatar that a lot of people were likely to relate to and listen to. I have no concrete proof, okay? This is just my opinion, but it is the most likely scenario that I've considered. So you can take that at face value and you are absolutely, positively, warmly welcome to disagree. That's just my opinion on that. Right. But I also can't get around the fact that there is to this day no credible account by any historian that documents anything that happens in the Gospels. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And you would think that Things like choirs of angels and a dude healing lepers and feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes or whatever it was, that would have gotten some attention. Yeah. It would have gotten the attention of someone who mattered, mm -hmm. and it flat out didn't. Even the two Gospels that deal with Jesus' birth tell astoundingly different stories anyway. Matthew doesn't mention shepherds, and Luke doesn't mention magi, just for starters. There are all kinds of accounts of other legit historical events and figures that have their place smack dab in the middle of Jesus' story, and yet not a single one includes him in its account. So tonight we want to take a little time and dissect the story of the Nativity and show how the details range from highly improbable to downright impossible, and at the end I'm going to deliver a brief message of hope for the season that revolves around things that are real, not simply imagined. Let's start out with a quick look at Matthew versus Luke in terms of what this story is and what it looks like. And I'm going to give a nod to churchoftruth.org for coming up with these timelines for me. And they're going to show up more than once. The link to the page on their website that I use for this is right there in the show notes. And it is well worth a look because there's even more that didn't make it into the episode that I think is really worth looking at over there. But let's look at how these accounts differ right off the bat. This is the nativity story according to Matthew 1:18 through 2:23. This is the timeline. Joseph and Mary are already in Bethlehem with absolutely no explanation. An angel appears to reassure Joseph and tell him to marry Mary, which he does. The angel appears and lets him know, "Hey, you know what? She's telling you the truth. It's legit. This is God's kid and you're going to help raise him." And so his uh his response is basically an okay, and he marries her. Jesus is then born in a home in Bethlehem. Around two years later, a few astrologers see his star, and they inform Herod that the Christ child has been born, basically. Yeah. Then the Magi find Jesus in Bethlehem, and they come bearing gifts. Joseph is warned in a dream to flee to Egypt to save Jesus from Herod's massacre. 
said massacre commences, and then Herod dies. Joseph is again told in a dream that Herod is dead, and he takes his family back to Bethlehem. Joseph is afraid to go to Judea and instead makes his home with Mary, Jesus, and his eventual family with Mary in Nazareth, part of Galilee. That's the story in Matthew. This is the nativity story according to Luke chapter 2. A census requires Joseph and Mary to travel from their home in Nazareth to Bethlehem because Jesus is of the line of David. Jesus is then born in Bethlehem, and as there is no room in the inn, Mary places Jesus in a manger. Angels appear to nearby shepherds and tell them of the birth of the Christ child. The shepherds visit the family, and after about a month or so, Jesus is taken to Simeon in the temple in Jerusalem for his bris. Simeon and Anna laud Jesus and really hype up who this kid is and what things he's going to do and all that. And then Joseph and Mary return home to Nazareth with Jesus. That is it in a nutshell. There's more, and we're going to get into some of the greater details of this right now. But just think for a minute about just how different those two accounts are. And yet we're supposed to accept both of them as truth because all scripture is God-breathed. And the word of God is without error or contradiction. These are the things that we were taught. But just looking at these two accounts side by side, you can tell that they're fraught with contradictions Mm. and that there are problems with the timeline of things. So let's dive right into some of those problems right now. For starters, only two of the synoptic gospels even mention the birth of Jesus. Mark doesn't even want to uh, deal with it. The writer of Mark basically decided that the details of Jesus's childhood were inconsequential enough to just skip right over. You know, choirs of angels, that's insignificant. I guess. I mean, and all of the things that supposedly happened around his birth, these are all insignificant as far as Mark is concerned. So when the scene opens in Mark's gospel, John the Baptist is already heralding the coming of the Messiah and Jesus is about 30. Matthew and Luke both provide details of Christ's nativity, as we've already demonstrated. Matthew attempts to make the whole thing legit by starting out tracing Jesus's lineage. I love how even in this context, the spotlight is on the men. This is actually Joseph's line that we're seeing. Let's make sure we understand that. It is very important to understand that. Since Mary and Joseph were not related, as far as we know, the entire timeline is pointless. Because if you're going to recount a genealogy, the genes need to be present. In Jesus's case, the family tree is short. It goes from Mary as his mother directly to God by way of the Holy Spirit as his father. That right there, listeners, is the entire line. I wonder how many of our evangelical and ex-evangelical listeners have even considered this because of the way that this is taught. If the writer of this account wanted to be legit, he would have traced Mary's lineage because she is the only one with blood ties to Jesus. But that's just not the way they did things back then. So when you read this genealogy, it goes back to David, but then it stops at Joseph, who shares no DNA with Jesus. Hmm. Now, I think that all of the stuff with the genealogies here was a setup. It was a ploy to set up details about a few prophecies and tie Jesus to them, which still wouldn't work because the bloodline is broken. It still wouldn't work. Mm. I think that that whole thing is also alluded to in Matthew 1.17. And it's easy. It is very, very easy to report fulfillments of prophecies when you have the source material right there in front of you. And all you have to do is write fulfillments into the narrative because that is what happened here. (laughs) Any fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy in the New Testament is in the New Testament because the Old Testament existed when the New was written. And they just wrote fulfillments right into the narrative in a C-C kind of way. Yeah. That was it. Now, Luke has an angel dealing with Mary. Matthew, now... Another major difference here is that Luke has an angel dealing with Mary. Matthew has an angel dealing with Joseph. 
In Matthew, the angel is charged with making sure Joseph doesn't abandon Mary. In Luke, the angel shows up to both tell Mary what's about to happen and pretend to get consent. She's told that she's going to have this baby and agrees, not that I really think she was given a choice. Right. Now, to piece together the entire story, you basically have to make a patchwork quilt of all the details in both Matthew and Luke. Fortunately, there are resources out there that do this. There are sources, and I'm going to link to one of them in the show notes, that gives you the synoptic gospels along what the perceived timeline of events is. You get each passage in parallel, and you can kind of sort of see how it all meshes together. But, you know, it's very difficult to mesh oil and water, and that's what these two accounts really are. So you really do have to look at the whole picture. But when you set out to do that, you're also assuming that you think that every detail is correct, but just not reported by both parties. That doesn't work at all here. Part of the reason for that is that both of these writers had very different agendas. You see, they taught us this in Bible college. Mm. Okay, They gave us a lot of the fuel that we needed to be able to take this apart. They just taught it from a perspective that wasn't conducive to taking it apart. They taught it from a perspective that was conducive to just believing it and memorizing it for the test. Right. That was it. But yes, very different agendas. Matthew wanted to show Jesus as the tragic hero, literally persecuted from birth. Luke wanted to portray him as a figure of majesty, worthy of reverence and veneration. I see what you mean. He's more conducive to very big displays of grandeur. Oh, yeah. The angels and glory to God on the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill toward men and all of that. There isn't a whole lot of that in Matthew's account. Right. Matthew's account is actually better storytelling, to be perfectly honest. There's There are more arcs. You've got the whole murderous Herod thing going on, where Herod finds out that the Christ child has been born. Oh, really? Well, tell me where. And we see the bloodshed that ensues as a result of that. Whereas the message in Luke is, yes, much, much more fanfare-ish. Yeah. You know, this is a king's birthday. Right. And that's what um, that's what he's trying to relay here. Matthew again tries to lend credibility to his story by citing a prophecy about a baby born in Bethlehem who would rise to power as a great ruler. But here's the problem. Jesus never did rise to power as a great ruler, at least not within the society to which that prophecy pertained. Right. I mean, he's called King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but he never had any earthly authority that wasn't bestowed or thrust upon him by the people. But King Herod took him seriously, and he really is the only one who matters since he's the one that manages to further the narrative at this point. But that's far enough ahead in the story to just leave right there. We're talking in very specific terms right now about the details of Jesus's birth. Now, in Matthew 1, we get the genealogy and Joseph's convo with the angel. In chapter 2, Jesus is already born and being visited by the Magi. We'll get to them in a few, but let's back up a little first and look at what this story looks like from Luke's perspective. Luke, at least, has the good taste to start out by telling the audience that he didn't actually witness any of this and that his account was a collection of details from largely oral tradition. I'm not sure why anyone who ever played the game Telephone would even want to read further. A story can change drastically going through just three people. I've done this exercise with three people. And it can change very, very drastically. Now imagine the contamination that had already occurred by the time this was written. How many hands had this story gone through and how many changes had been made before it ever made it to Luke? Which is probably why we've got angels heralding the birth of Jesus while Matthew just has some dude sending out his henchmen to kill babies, okay? If it comes from oral tradition, then he he chose sources that contained this information. And without any kind of checks and balances, without anyone to confer with, he just wrote his account, as the others did as well. And this is what we got. It went through a lot of hands before it made it onto the pages of the Bible. And just a quick note about the person that Luke addresses in the beginning here. The Gospel of Luke is written more like a letter in terms of the way that the information is presented 
And it is addressed in the very beginning to a recipient named Theophilus. Well, Theophilus probably wasn't a person. The word simply means lover of God, which has led many theological scholars through a process of exegesis to believe that this text was aimed at a Greek audience who had already decided to believe in the messaging going in. The familial, and that's what the philo part of this is, it means brotherly or familial lovers of God. These people who identified as such wanted the entire story. So this guy decided to give them one. Whether or not he embellished some of it himself also remains to be seen. Now let's dig into some of the details of the story. I'm going to try to follow the timeline in the synoptics and point out a few things along the way. I already mentioned Matthew has an angel deal with Joseph. Luke has one approaching Mary. There's nothing in the narrative where they compare notes and talk to each other about their celestial visitors. You would think that would be important too. Yeah. The angel who visits Mary tells her that Elizabeth is also six months pregnant, so Mary visits Elizabeth for about three months. It's sort of implied that Mary hung around long enough to be her midwife and then stayed until things were settled with little Johnny, because that was who Elizabeth gave birth to, was John the Baptist. And Zechariah, in that chapter, basically pronounces John the Baptist a prophet. So far, there's nothing too strange going on here by biblical standards anyway, aside from the fact that it's all fiction and really poorly presented and convoluted. There's not much that I would consider to be terribly problematic here, aside from the fact that Joseph and Mary never talked to each other about the angels. And if they did, it should have been in there. Yeah. That's not something that should be happening off camera. No. No. But here, for me anyway, is where things start to turn dicey. Luke chapter 2, 1 through 3 tells us that, reading from the King James, it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. So, let's deal with this for just a minute. My first question, because I've heard different answers to this, was whether or not there actually was a census. And there are some that will say flat out no. But history does actually recount a census that went on around this time. But the problem is the timeline is off by a good bit, at least several years. Right. There was a census conducted by the Roman Empire, but it actually happened nine years after Herod's death. If that was the case, how did Herod send his unwitting soothsaying henchmen to find the Christ child in Matthew 2, 7 and 8? The reason why that whole thing about the census is in there in the first place was that it was an approximate historical marker that people would be able to relate to and recognize as something that happened in their lifetime. Most wouldn't put all the details together or even be able to read the accounts for themselves, so it was a safe piece of real history to write all the fiction around. At the time, whoever thought that the story would ever be contested? Of course, evangelicals and their ilk have their workarounds, none of them valid. And this is a little snippet from the Wikipedia entry on the census of Quirinius. Some conservative Christians have argued that Quirinius may have had an earlier and historically unattested term as governor of Syria, or that he previously held other senior positions with which may have led him to be involved in the affairs of Judea during Herod's reign, or that the passage should be interpreted in some other fashion. Luke 2.2 in the English Standard Version, for example, has a footnote. Who gives a fuck about a footnote? But it has a footnote which offers this was the registration before Quirinius was governor of Syria as an alternate translation, but this is not in the text of any major English translation. I love that last part, especially... Um, how they first start by sort of kind of stating it as fact and then backpedaling just yeah. a little bit. The registration before Quirinius was governor. You know how many times they did this to us in Bible college? Oh, yeah. The ways that they tried to explain away certain things. But let's cut right to the chase. The purpose of a census in the Roman Empire was about one thing and one thing only, determining rates of taxation. It's right there in the King James. No one gave a rat's ass who was from whose line and who was a 900 times removed relative of who. And yet we have this as the explanation of the census. 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. That's Luke chapter 2, verse 4. Here's the problem. That would never have mattered to the Roman Empire. They flat out didn't care who anyone's great, 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 great grandfather was. They didn't care, not even a little. And seriously, how would Joseph have even been able to trace his roots back that many generations? I know I can trace mine back by maybe one and a half. I don't even remember what my grandfather's name on my father's side was. I can't even begin to tell you what this person's name was now. Again, I'm going to reference the churchoftruth.org because they say this really, really well. How did Joseph know that he should return to the city of David, Bethlehem? How did Joseph know that he was of the lineage of David? Joseph is the 28th generation after David. Do you know who your grandfather 28 generations ago was? How did Joseph know? Why did he go to the city of his great 28th grandfather and not to the city of his great 42nd grandfather, Abraham. Why stop at the middle of generations? All the Romans cared about was getting their tax from the citizenry. Only the Jews cared about where ancestors lived and only if it related to their superhero, David, who was one of history's most detestable men, and he was. Why was it important to the writer of Luke's gospel to mention Joseph's alleged ancestry? Because it made the point, badly and in grievous error, but it made the point that Jesus was, quote, a descendant of David, which fulfilled another prophecy as delivered by the angel to Mary in Luke 1, 32 and 33. And let's just look at uh, what it says. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, his father, his father, David, and shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and all of his kingdom there shall be no end. But allow me to once again address the herd of stampeding wild elephants in the room. If Joseph was a descendant of David, that did not make Jesus part of the line of David because Jesus shared 0% DNA with Joseph. 0%. But this was a so male-centric society that I'm sure it flat out didn't occur to them that Joseph didn't sire Jesus, or they knew and they didn't care. And to make the matter certain, here are a few scholarly thoughts on this from an author named Rabbi Tobias Singer, or Tovia Singer. Mary's genealogy is completely irrelevant to Jesus' supposed lineage to King David. Nowhere in the New Testament is Mary's genealogy recorded. Matrilineal ancestry is irrelevant to tribe identification. Both the first chapter of Matthew and the third chapter of Luke contain a putative genealogy of Joseph alone. Although these two genealogies completely contradict each other, neither suggests that Mary was a descendant of King David. Joseph's genealogy is irrelevant to Jesus because according to two out of four Gospels, Joseph was not Jesus's father. And it's those two Gospels that the vast majority of Christians side with when deciding that they're going to believe anything about Jesus. And just back to the rabbi for a sec here, nowhere in the third Gospel or in the entire New Testament for that matter, is there a claim that Mary was a descendant of the house of David. On the contrary, Luke plainly asserts that it is Joseph who is from the house of David, not Mary. Amazing. In just the first few verses, the narrative completely unravels itself. And yet, 2,000 years later, so few people have managed to examine this one detail, and it's a big one, that the entire story just keeps going and going and going and going. You know who could have fulfilled the angel's prophecy? And, you know, I, I was like this week years old when I actually considered this, but It really, it jumped into my head while I was researching this. You know who could have fulfilled the angel's prophecy? It's easy. Jesus's brothers, any of them, could have fulfilled the prophecy because they've got the DNA. They were legit descendants of David, at least in terms of this book and its narrative. They were descendants of David. Fun fact, most evangelicals are aware and believe that Jesus had half-siblings, And yet, hardly any of them have given this one point much thought at all because they're not taught to, because they're not encouraged to. 
but it's right there. It's like, it's, it's staring you right in the face and it eludes almost everybody. That's, that's what we're up against folks. That is what we're up against. And just to um, put a, a period on this point, the new Testament names four male half siblings in Joseph's genealogy, James, the just Joseph, Simon and Jude, any of them could have been the subject of the prophecy, but Jesus flat out could not. Now let's look at the problem of no room at the inn. No, the Bethlehem Holiday Inn wasn't full. And no, Jesus wasn't born where ox and ass were teeming. And there was no evil innkeeper turning an infant out into the cold, not even in the Bible. Let's look first at the no room at the inn statement in Luke chapter 2, verse 7. This guy says it better than I can, so I'm just going to let him. This is from a blogger named Todd Bolin, a theist and seemingly evangelical who actually gets this right. Um, thanks, by the way, Todd, for exegeting this for me. It saved me some time. And he says, in the typical Christmas pageant, one of the children will be cast as the heartless innkeeper who refuses lodging to Joseph and pregnant Mary. Most know that there is no innkeeper mentioned in the Bible, but fewer are aware that there is not even an inn described. The view that Joseph and Mary simply arrived late to Bethlehem and accommodations at the local hotel were full is incorrect. The word translated as inn is the word cataluma, which is used elsewhere by Luke and translated as guest chamber or upper room. When Luke wants to speak of a paid establishment, he uses a different Greek word, pandokian, as in the story of the Good Samaritan. The word appears in Luke 10, 34. And in that instance, the word that's being used is pandokian. Unfortunately, of the dozens of English translations that I've checked, all of them translate Cataluma as in in Luke 2.7 and not as guest room. The result of this mistranslation leads to a different understanding of the story. It's not that Joseph and Mary were late to town, but it's that they were rejected by their own family. Clearly, they had family members in this town, and that was the reason they returned to Bethlehem for the census. That there was no room in a guest chamber for a pregnant woman indicates that they chose not to make room for this unwedded mother. The birth of Jesus in a room where animals lived suggests shame and rejection. So it may not have been a lie, but it could have just been artistic license. It could have just been said that way to make a specific point. But we're supposed to take the Bible at face value, and we're supposed to believe that all of these things are true. So if you're doing that, then doesn't it cease to be the word of God? Doesn't it cease to be true at that point? I've known about this for a little while, but it's interesting that even I didn't think about the fact that there's no innkeeper mentioned. Mm. I had to actually go yeah. back and read it again and realize that this was a cultural thing, that it wasn't a biblical thing at right. all. Now let's talk about the timing of the Magi's visit. So you look at any nativity scene, crash scene, where this particular scene plays out and you see it's always three of them and they're marveling at this infant in the manger well there's no possible way that that could be true for starters the magi saw Jesus' start after he had been born so you got to think they didn't hop a plane there was no way that they were going to be able to make it to the manger in a couple of hours jesus had already been born and was considerably older than an infant when these events would have had to have taken place. Even in Bible college, they taught us that the Magi couldn't have possibly made their way to Jesus until Jesus was already at least two years old, and probably older, and likely living in an actual house. They weren't gathered round the manger, they weren't kings, and the Bible never says how many there were. Placing the Magi at the birth of Jesus also presents a contradiction with Herod's decree. Herod knew the timeline, which is why he ordered all male children in the vicinity of Bethlehem, two years old and younger, to be slaughtered upon being told of the existence, not the coming, but the existence of the Christ child, and that he was in Bethlehem. Why kill two-year-olds if you're after an infant? Mm. 
And again, all questions that we're just not taught to ask or even consider. It's also worth noting that Joseph and Mary were never alone. And in so many accounts of the nativity, you know, you see them trundling through the cold with Mary riding on a donkey and Joseph just sort of um, protecting them out there in the cold, no one else around. It's silent night, holy night, as far as the eye can see. But that couldn't possibly be the way that it was. Joseph and Mary were likely part of a large caravan of relatives, making their way, quote unquote, home to register for the census. So this notion of Mary being led solely by Joseph riding on a donkey is ridiculous if people were actually traveling for a census. Now, I'm playing devil's advocate, of course. I'm talking about this not in terms of someone who believes that these were details that you should really be considering as truth or fact, but just from the standpoint of the narrative itself. If you really made a quote-unquote realistic picture of this in your head, you would be seeing wall-to-wall people with varying degrees of shared DNA. The themes of bleakness and isolation that are perpetuated mostly in popular carols and contemporary works of art couldn't have been more backwards. Most of the reason why Joseph and Mary couldn't get accommodations is that with so many relatives descending upon their own, preference was given to family members without blights on their souls. Okay, Again, Mary was pregnant. It was, at least in their own circles, known at that point that things were a little off with the timeline in terms of when she got married and how pregnant she is right now. There were at least questions and speculations. And the shame of being unwed at the time of conception did not bode well for members of their family. Even if they had been told the truth, they probably would have been treated like wackos anyway. Now, the worst problem, the absolute worst problem with any of this that I can see, and let's, let's steer away from the Bible just for a little bit. Let's steer away from what the words in the Bible say, and let's think just for a minute about how all of these things are portrayed in media and in other ways. The worst problem that I see here with the nativity story and the way that it is told and perpetuated is that almost every character in the story is depicted as white. And you see this in paintings, you see it in nativity and crash scenes, you see it in movies, you see it in book illustrations. Every damn Christmas cantata across the Bible belt will feature a very white Joseph and Mary and somebody's kid six months old or younger. Mm-hmm. usually white. Yeah. Okay. They don't seem to have a problem with the Magi being black or being Asian because that's where apparently they, they were said to have come from. It only says the East. Right. So whatever that actually means, Jesus and his cast of enigmatically European named, but genealogically middle Eastern characters is almost always portrayed as pasty white people for the same reason Rufus gives in Dogma. Making Jesus or anything associated with him ethnically accurate presents a detriment to the message because how could the King of Kings and Lord of Lords be anything but white, right? It's amazing how far back this bullshit actually goes, but it goes back a long, long way. And these things have been perpetuated for a long time. And before I get emails, yes, I know. In the quote-unquote originals with all of these documents, these people did, in fact, have Middle Eastern names. They were given these European names when the Bible was translated into English so that there would be more relatability. So, yes, I know. They didn't have European names from much, much later in history. (laughs) They had names that were relevant to the time and the place. But, I mean, that still doesn't make up for the fact that we have this pairing in our minds of these wonderful European names and these pasty white European fellows Mm. that carried them. I'm thinking about even going as far back as the Catholic Church and all the stained glass windows. I never saw Jesus as anything but pasty white. Right. And there's no possible way that he could have been, even if he had been real. And the, the nativity story is relatively short. So I'm already getting down to the end of my list of grievances with this. But I do want to, again, give a little bit of a nod to the people at churchoftruth.org or thechurchoftruth.org because um, they also did a decent amount of my homework for me because I went out looking for just an exhaustive list of contradictions. 
And yes, I read the different accounts at the beginning. So you already have an idea, but it makes an even bigger impact when you look at them side by side. So that's what I'm going to do. There are so many contradictions in the nativity story between the gospels. It's absolutely shameful that more people don't notice or flat out don't care. And I think that it's a good mix of both. The whole thing is, in my opinion, very life of pie. The whole choose your better story kind of thing. Or, you know, if you if you want to be really saucy about it, just combine them. You know, Pi actually liked to do that with his religions, you know. He was Christian when it suited him. He was Hindu when it suited him. He was Muslim when it suited him. And people do that even if they don't pick and choose from different religions. They clearly take all of the parts of their own that they like and combine them in a way that suits their needs. That's what people do with the nativity story. And then they start adding other details like an evil innkeeper that doesn't exist. So without further ado, the contradictions as laid out by the church of truth.org in Matthew, Jesus was born under the reign of Herod who died in four BC or BCE in Luke. Jesus was born after Serenius instituted the tax in six CE slash AD that Caesar Augustus decreed. Matthew has wise men from the East bringing gifts. Luke has shepherds abiding in the field. No gifts. In Matthew, a star leads the wise men to the house in which Jesus is born. In Luke, an angel of the Lord points the shepherds to the city of David where Jesus is born in a manger. In Matthew, Joseph and Mary are already in Bethlehem and then Jesus is born. In Luke, Joseph must return to his forefather's homeland in order to be taxed. And that's why they're going to Bethlehem at the beginning right. of that story. In Matthew, King Herod decrees that all children to and under living in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof be murdered. In Luke, there's no mention of King Herod or a massive infanticide. And again, big detail to leave out. Mm. In Matthew, immediately after birth, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus flee to Egypt to escape King Herod's decree. In Luke, while still in Bethlehem, Jesus is circumcised eight days after his birth. After the circumcision, Mary spends eight days being purified and a pair of turtle doves are sacrificed, all according to the law as presented by Moses. And important only to Jews, no one else gives a hoot. Then, at least 16 days after the birth of Jesus, they all went to Nazareth. And let's keep in mind that this is the very beginning of Jesus's story. There are contradictions, disagreements, and so many holes in the narrative, I have to wonder how it ever made it past the Council of Nicaea. But it did, and it made it much, much, much further. But people will always pick and choose what they want to believe. They will always gravitate and cling to the best story. And even with all the exalted language in the first couple chapters of Jesus's story, I don't see the overlying message of hope that so many people do here. I see a group of people testing the waters. I see deception and maybe even the Bronze Age equivalent of split testing to see which version attracts more believers. Do people prefer shepherds or magi? Do they want an unassuming savior or one heralded by angels and announced with fanfare? Will they listen if we say he's from an important bloodline or does that not matter? Do we need alternative facts in the narrative to attract a wider demo? I think these are all things they considered. Mm. I don't rightly know why there are so many contradictions and disparities between books that were both deemed to be God-breathed when entered into the canon, but I do know what I learned in grade school. On a true-false test, if any part of the statement is false, it's all false. And there are loads of statements in these accounts that are contradictory. If you even want to consider for a minute that there's any truth to it, someone has to be right and someone has to be wrong. It makes no sense that things like angels singing to shepherds would be noticed by one writer and not the other, or would have been reported to one writer and not the other. It's a big thing. Neither of the writers of either Matthew or Luke, in my opinion, would have considered an event like that too trivial to mention. And then there's the issue of the virgin birth only being acknowledged by two out of four Gospels. This is the thing that most people's faith hinges on. And if you follow the narrative through all four Gospels, there's only a 50-50 chance that a virgin birth even occurred. Mark and John don't mention it or even consider it. And again, it's a big fucking detail. 
So at the beginning, I promised a message of hope to take you into Christmas. So here is my Christmas message of hope to the listeners of this show. There are plenty of us out there. There are plenty of us out there who are considering everything that Shell and I brought to the table tonight and many beyond us out there making sure people know just how convoluted this story actually is. We're not saying anything tonight that hasn't been said before. If there is a glimmer of hope in all of this, it lies in people who are committed to the truth, continuing to seek it and posit it in contexts like these. And there are clear disparities between the truth and the story of Christ's nativity. It's a fun story to write a holiday around, but that's all it is. Religious myth designed to elicit emotional responses in the hearer. And different things do get different people's attention. If you've listened this far, it's safe to say we have your attention. So here's your takeaway for this episode. Don't base your life or beliefs on things that even the people asking you to believe it can't agree upon. Don't waste your time spending years in church or in environments that perpetuate the notion of Christ's divinity based on such a shaky and disjointed narrative. Ask questions, seek the truth wherever it leads, and stop following the lead of other people whose only agenda is to keep you shackled to your faith for the rest of your life. Use your intellect to examine the things you believe absent of emotion, and you'll find it harder to keep swallowing the lies that your religion has told you. Purpose to enjoy the Christmas season for all the magnificent secularness that it offers. Enjoy the nativity story from the standpoint of fiction. It's okay. Just don't keep trying to find truth in it because it simply isn't there. And once you get okay with that idea, guess what? You're going to be one more step, one more big step toward getting and staying unbound. enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.